Welcome. We are beginning our Advent series, and I have to confess I can be a little bit of a Grinch. If I'm honest, and probably if I didn't have kids, I would hardly do anything for Christmas. I can tend to be quite the cynic, and, uh, and honestly, a lot of the cynicism is true, right? I mean, it's mostly a bunch of crass materialism, isn't it? Just worshiping at the feet of Wall Street. Do we need Barbie dolls and jewelry to celebrate the King of Kings coming? So there's some truth to our cynicism, at least to mine, sometimes. But I had a little bit of a sort of rude awakening the last couple of years. One, I realized that, uh, well... The wise men literally brought gifts to Jesus, and so uh, you have that right there in Scripture. But also just realizing that celebration and mirth and joy is very Christian. It should not be foreign to Christianity. The world has it backwards. See, the world looks at Christianity and thinks that's where there's not going to be any fun, there's a bunch of rules, and they're going to take my life away. But hopefully, we see that Christianity, at its essence, is about joy and celebration and love. So that's what it's meant to be. Jesus himself, as we just heard in our passage, was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a glutton and a drunkard. He was accused of that. And so I want us to try to um, ask what would it mean to truly celebrate the birth of Christ. And um, I just learned this week, actually, that John Calvin, most of us assume John Calvin is this sort of anti-fun, Grinch-like figure of theology. Uh, But it turns out he actually... It's not like that at all. And he also um, promoted celebrating Christmas and other days throughout the year of Jesus' life. Uh, But he didn't make it something to bind people's conscience. And so that's sort of our view when it comes to Christmas. We actually see uh, the regulative principle that we call it is good news, meaning God alone is Lord of your conscience. And so if he hasn't bound it in Scripture, we're not going to bind it. We don't see that you need to worship God through Christmas, but we do see that you should worship God on Sundays. So if you don't want to come to our Christmas service on on two weeks on Friday, that's okay. We don't see that as anything violating anything. Uh, But we do not want to stick our heads in the sand and act like nobody's actually talking about Christ coming. And so our Advent series is the Songs of the Christ, and it's the Christ because Christ is a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, It is a title. It means king, anointed king. Uh, So he is Jesus the king. And I want to, as we look at this song, uh, imagine what would it be like to really praise him in the way that he is due. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for uh, this day that you have set apart. The day of the Lord, the day of the resurrection that began the new life in the midst of the old. And so we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would comfort the brokenhearted, Lord. 
the downtrodden amongst us, and that you would challenge those who are hard-hearted, that you would break down all of the barriers that we put up against you, bring us to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as a sort of um, prelude or preface to get into this psalm, I want us to make sure we understand the immediate context and also how it's meant to be read uh, after Christ. So this psalm, Psalm 45, likely a psalm written for Solomon's wedding, King Solomon. Uh, He likely married someone outside of Israel, which is referenced later on in the psalm. Um, And it was probably used many times over for other royal weddings. But it's very clear that Solomon in his own day did not fulfill the promises that we are told in this psalm itself. David, his father, is promised he will have a a son on the throne forever and ever. We're told in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But Solomon falls into grievous sin, and his sons, his immediate sons, split the kingdom. And so after Solomon, the kingdom is split in north and south. A couple hundred years go by. There's lots of clashing and factions, and then they're sent into exile. Is this promise still true? And basically, uh, I'm happy to talk afterwards in more detail about how we get there. But basically, this psalm is fulfilled in Christ. The kingdom that David was promised, that the first Christians were waiting to be fulfilled, is fulfilled in Christ. He is David's greater son. And so when we read this psalm, just like we read the whole rest of the Old Testament that's meant to point us to Christ, this psalm specifically, as a wedding of the king of Israel to his to be bride, ought to be read, if we are to understand it at its best, ought to be read as about Christ and the church. Jesus shows us the fullness of the Old Testament, and in fact, Hebrews 1, in case there was any doubt, applies verse 6 to Jesus as the superior king, and we see throughout Scripture how Christ and the church is, uh, is portrayed as a groom and bride. And so there's a lot that we can see to sort of prove that, but I want, I want to just sort of get that out of the way because that's going to be how we read the psalm. I'm basically going to assume it. But to start off, the really first point that I want to get at is helping us see that our king is extravagant. Is extravagant. Is worthy of a psalm like this. And it's called, actually, a love song. And if you notice all of these different uh, details that are given, the specifics that are given about God, is such a good habit when we pray, is to give God the description of who he is. Tell him who he is, just like you do to a beloved. You don't just say, hopefully, you're good, or worse, you're nice. right? You want to go into more and more detail. And some of us, I talk about this a lot, using ACTS as an acronym for prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration for a lot of us can be the hardest because we only think of God in terms of us. But if we try to adore God for who he is in and of himself, that might be hard to figure out what that is. We get some clues here. He is a God of truth, a God of meekness and righteousness. 
a God of splendor and majesty, a God who is mighty, a God who has no competitor, who is eternal, whose throne exists forever and ever. We are told in other psalms to go on and on about his wondrous works. Some psalms that are still poetic and still meant to be songs literally tell the history of Israel. They go, and you created, and then you saved your people out of Israel, and you, I mean out of Egypt. You brought them through the sea, and then they did this, and then they did this. It's describing God's wondrous works. In our psalm here, we have the description in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, or, or the loveliest in some other translations. Grace is poured upon your lips. So my first question is, do we consider God to be extravagant? Is that your picture of God? Or is he more of a frugal taskmaster, stingy, doesn't like to give too much, will give us enough forgiveness just to get by, will give us a ticket that will barely get us into heaven, but he's not that luxurious. Ask yourself that. I wonder why it's hard for us to imagine God as extravagant. Partly, maybe because we're so focused on ourselves, our sin seems too deep, too hopeless, and we think, surely God doesn't really like me. He may begrudgingly let me into heaven, but he doesn't really like me. In that case, we're too focused on ourselves, or maybe we're just afraid of that word, extravagant. Seems kind of like a bad word. To be luxurious is to be wasteful, isn't it? We want to be frugal. We don't want to waste the limited resources we have been given. But God does not have limited resources. We don't have to look at God as if we look at the world, as if this is sort of zero-sum game, that if he gives us a little, then we got to give some back. That is not the picture of God. And in case you're worried that I'm just going off on some psalm where they just got caught up in the royal wedding and the fancy decorative stuff that happened in the temple. I want to just go through some passages in the New Testament where we see God pictured as extravagant. Okay? And this is actually pretty easy, just working off the word riches. Romans 10, God is one who is bestowing his riches upon all who call on him. Ephesians 1 It's in almost every chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to the riches of his grace, which he what? Which he lavished upon us. A little later in the same chapter, the prayer for us is to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what? Your hope. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Chapter 2, still in Ephesians, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Chapter 3, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul talking about himself, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, the people that he thought were far, far below him and forsaken by God, to preach to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And then later, the, the, his prayer in chapter 3, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Philippians 4, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. Are you convinced yet? Colossians 1, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Colossians 2, he prays that we would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. And in Luke 15, in case you're thinking I'm just cherry-picking out of Paul, Luke 15, we have this, he starts off that chapter by saying, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Not unlike the passage we heard read. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Luke 15 is the chapter where he goes and tells the story about the, hundred, the man with a hundred sheep, when one goes off, he leaves the 99. The woman with the lost coin who searches for the lost coin as a picture of God searching after us. And then he tells the story of the man who had two sons, or what is popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son. This picture of God being extravagantly loving to a son has forsaken everything in an offensive way. The father runs when he sees him far off, runs. Fathers didn't run back then. Runs after him. And placed his robe upon him. And placed the ring of his family identity. And I, uh, two weeks ago, I had this, it was really a tongue-in-cheek, hilarious debate, but I got into this debate with two students who really hate the contemporary Christian song called Reckless Love. And it's a song that quotes the, the 99 and the, and the 1, and it's sort of it's riffing off of Luke 15, but they don't like it because of the title, Reckless. Is God's love reckless? And probably most of us want to say no, it's not. But I wanted to play devil's advocate because I think that their picture of God and, more, and our picture of God is far too subdued. That God's love does appear to be reckless. It does appear to be out of control. When we look at what he did to us in the face of our sin and cosmic treason to lavish grace upon us, maybe reckless is the wrong word, but surely extravagant, luxurious, gets at the fact that our king indeed is extravagant. The second point is the extravagant king deserves extravagant praise. And so going back to the psalm, we see almost an example. What does it mean to lavish extravagant praise upon Jesus? We need our imagination, if you will. And I think the first, the first sort of uh, thing we can do to imitate the psalm is actually to act like a poet. To act like a poet. And it's striking that Poetry is a major genre of the Bible. It's throughout the Psalms and it's throughout other parts of the Old and New Testament. And it's something that a lot of us have a hard time with, don't like. I know I can get easily impatient with it. But why is poetry so fitting to describe God? Well, in the Psalm, we have this description, verse 1, he's, his heart overflows or boils over with a pleasing theme. 
It's like he's lost in wonder of the object that he is beholding, right? His king. It's heart, this heartfelt language that sort of goes beyond what he can say in just regular descriptive narrative language. He's pulling on words that a lot of us either don't use at all or make us feel uncomfortable, describing the king as the most handsome or loveliest splendor and majesty. When you read uh, Christians of other generations, you see them use words that we don't use, like delight. Like God is actually pleased with us. That there is sweet, sweet comfort. And so another question is for us to ask, do we overflow? Does our heart boil over in praise to God? We overflow with a lot of other things. We overflow what? Sports, romance, Christmas gifts. We overflow in all sorts of things. Do we overflow in praise to God? What would that even look like? Do we abound in thanksgiving as we're told? Can you imagine, can you imagine writing a love letter to your beloved? They read it once. That's nice. And they move on. In Matthew 13, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven with two short parables. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had. Does God capture your heart that way? Do you want to overflow in praise but don't know how? Are you trying to learn how? Acts like a poet, also acts like a musician. Do you ever wonder why there's music in church? If you've never asked that question, I assure you, uh, people who don't grow up in church ask that question. Because I was one of them. And when I first showed up in a church-like thing, a Christian thing, and they were singing, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. And unless it's a rock concert, you don't really sing with strangers anywhere else. You may sing by yourself. But why do we sing in church? Is it appropriate to sing in church? There's this example, and I wish I could find which tribe it was, but a West African tribe apparently converting to Christianity was described as joining those who sing. Joining those who sing. And I have no doubt that any culture with music, its origins is in the transcendent. It's in a search for the transcendent one, right? It comes from religion in the West. It comes from the church. Karl Barth, the most significant theologian of the last century, wrote a book on Mozart called Traces of Transcendence. That's what music is for, if you will. Now, of course, we're not talking about contrived, manipulative music. We're not talking about music that just wants to drum up a bunch of emotions, get you excited to make a decision or something. That's just straight-up manipulation. But the other side is worse, too. To just have dry content without emotion is actually not understanding the content properly. Do you get that? 
I remember it was several years ago, I think it was like a compline service or something, where we read that same Luke 7 passage. And the reader was being, was breaking down into tears as they were reading it. There are some passages that we should read in tears or that we should read in song. That's the point. That's why they're in the poetic form. Now, I, as I admitted, it, I can be impatient when it comes to poetry, but as someone asked T.S. Eliot once, just tell me the point of your poem. And he just started reciting it again. It's supposed to go beyond the form that we normally speak. It's supposed to be even repetitive. The Psalms are repetitive at times. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And he says it every verse. The problem with a lot of our Christian songs is not that they're repetitive. It's that they don't really have much to say. They just don't say much. Right? Or they, you can take out Jesus and put in your boyfriend's name and it's the same song. The problem is usually with the content. But it's okay to be repetitive because it's becoming habitual. We want to say who God is over and over and over. So to give him extravagant praise is to be something like a poet. And if that wasn't um, unappealing enough to you, I think it's also to be like a cheerleader. I think he's acting like a cheerleader here. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. Ride out victoriously for the cause of truth. You get the sense that the psalmist is coming alongside the king saying, hurrah, look at what our king is, is. And look at what he's doing. And today, cheerleaders are often the butt of jokes. They're objectified. But they're humble, aren't they? It's like there's a core aspect to it where it's so humble to just cheer for someone else. And I realize that you may, especially if you think you're very manly man, you're not going to want to be like a cheerleader or a poet, and definitely not like a bride in a minute. But isn't that just your pride talking? Isn't that just your pride getting in the way of being willing to praise something outside yourself? Because it's the, it's the cynic, it's the Grinch, it's the one who is so, their world is so small that they are being curved in on themselves that they can't even praise something else. They're not even willing to be present in the moment because they always have to be outside of it looking down. We find something always to complain about, don't we? As one comedian put it, our hearts grumble about the speed of internet on an airplane. Is that you? Is that you whose heart is so curved in on itself that you just can't, you're not willing to be humble in praise? That the one person, the second person in the Trinity, who had every right not to be humble, humbled himself on our behalf, and you're too good to be humbled? You're too good to look outside yourself in praise of the one who made you? Act like a poet, act like 
a cheerleader, and then let's spend a few minutes on Luke 7. Luke 7, in the passage that I had read, starts off by Jesus saying, you are acting like children. You're acting like children saying, oh, you're not doing what I want. Because first they complain about John the Baptist being too stern and crazy. He's too ascetic. Now they complain about Jesus being like a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying, you guys don't know how to act when the Son of Man comes among you. You don't know how to act. And it feels like Luke is saying, let me show you how to act when Jesus comes among you. And behold, in verse 37, behold, wake up. Something crazy is about to happen. A woman of the city who was a sinner, who is she? She's a prostitute. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, not willing to come in front, probably because she's ashamed, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. What a waste. What a waste. All that money that it was worth. Everything she could have done with that money. She wouldn't have to prostitute herself anymore. Is that how we react? In a similar situation, that's how Judas reacted. What a waste. We could have given that money to the poor. Jesus tells him about that story of the two people with different debts. The one with the larger debt is more thankful. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I like that part. Just that first part. Do you see her? She wasn't even seen. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's meant to make us uncomfortable. It's meant to seem like a waste, isn't it? It's meant to be extravagant. We see it in our psalm. The king is anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. His robes are all fragrant. Ivory palaces with stringed instruments make him glad. We need to ask, what are you, what are we extravagant with? Meaning, when do we, quote unquote, waste our time, our money, our energy? Because most likely that is the thing you worship. That is what your heart really desires what you think you will find satisfaction in. When you're not being cost-effective or utilitarian. Do we do that with God? What would it look like to at least give glimpses of that to God? I try to take my kids out on on Sunday when I have them to ice cream. Because I want to give them a bit of a taste that Sunday is meant to be about joy and peace. It's not cost-effective. It's not healthy. 
be honest. But at some point, we've got to say, God is worth extravagant praise. He's worth it because he is extravagant. And then what's even more is that he's actually making us into his extravagant bride. And that's what I want to talk about for this final point. We have in verse 10, the bride comes on the scene. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. That's that reference probably from another nation. But it's also this reverence of don't look back. Don't look back. Leave your nets and follow me. Don't be distracted. Don't focus on other gods. Don't focus on other husbands. And the king will desire your beauty. You may start to get more nervous now. If you are already nervous, you may get more nervous. The king will desire your beauty. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Remember, this is about the bride of Christ. Do you think that that's about us? I mean, do you really? You may think intellectually. Do you think God is finds us pleasing? We're told he does. Psalm 87, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. Glorious things of thee are spoken. He's, he's taking account of this one was born there. He's like celebrating. They're from Zion. That's where my people are. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. 149. Psalm 35, who delights in the welfare of his servant. This is not just Old Testament. Colossians 1, part of the prayer is what? That we would live a life worthy of God, fully pleasing to him. You can look elsewhere. Sproul's book, R.C. Sproul, wrote a book on sanctification. He called it Pleasing God. Pleasing God. Now this, of course, should point us, and a lot of commentators point to the similarity between Psalm 45 and the Song of Songs, that most uncomfortable book in the Bible. What is it about? It's about a wedding. It's about sex. It's about taking pleasure in one another. But over and over in the history of the church, Bernard of Clairvaux, 11th century monk, Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, John Owens, a Puritan, they all talk about the Song of Songs as the epitome of the Christian life. As it gives us a glimpse of what it's supposed to be like. And then just to remind you of the Song of Songs, written by Solomon, presumably, draw me after you. Let us run, for your love is better than wine. With great delight I sat in his shadow. His banner over me was love. My beloved is mine, and I am his. That's in your Bible. And that's not even the racy part. And John Owen wrote a book called The Communion, Communion with God. He's quoting the Song of Songs a lot in it. And John Owen um, is a Puritan, and we normally think Puritans are as, as Mencken famously defined them, people who have this haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. They think Puritans are so dour, joyless, 
This is from a so-called Puritan. They're not like that at all. John Owen puts it this way. The chief way by which the saints have communion with the Father is love. Free, undeserved, eternal love. This love the Father pours on the saints. Saints are to see God as full of love to them. They are to receive Him as the one who loves them. They are to be full of praise and thanksgiving to God for His love. They are to show gratitude for His love by living a life which pleases Him. Be fully assured in your hearts that the Father loves you. Have no fears or doubts about His love for you. And then listen to this last part. The great sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. Do we get too caught up in so many other things and forget this basic of all points that it's about God's love? Yes, we were enemies. But if you've been reconciled in Christ, it is a past tense. You are no longer enemies. You are beloved. He loves you. You were committing cosmic treason, and he brought you back. He has extravagant love upon you. Even to the point that we see the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, in our psalm, we have the bride is actually being praised throughout all the nations. It's like he's going to be holding up his bride as saying, look, look who I get to enjoy this with. And I hope that every wedding you go to, you will get a glimpse of the groom when the bride first appears because that is a picture of God looking at you. That is a glimpse even a small one of God's extravagant love upon you. Wow. So really, I want to ask finally, are you going to be left out of that? Are you going to be left out of that cosmic wedding? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Because really, you have... You have a choice between pride pride or bride. Those are your options. Pride or bride. You can try to face the king of the world in your own pride. Caught up in yourself, curved in on yourself, not willing to be humble or to praise someone above you. Or you can actually become the extravagant bride that you were made to be as a part of the body of Christ, where you will find what we're chasing after with all this crazy materialism in Christmas, you will find lasting joy, real love, real extravagant love as we get lost in the wonder of Christ and his love 